Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today our very special guest is Helen Carr, who is an author and historian. Helen, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Deb. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. I understand it. You're having a heat wave over there? Oh, yes, it's lovely. We're used to it being incredibly chilly in, in the UK, so it's nice to have a bit of warmth. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Let's just jump right in, and I want to know about your interest in John of Gaunt. Yes. So it's been, um, oh my goodness, well, it's been many, many years that uh, that I have been interested in John of Gaunt, taking me way back to when I first, um, I suppose I first graduated from my undergraduate degree and I moved to London, as many people do. They make that sort of transition post-university to go and sort of you know, find your feet in the city. And I was uh, working at the time um, in, in, the, in the art world. And I have always been a lover of history. My, all my degrees have been in history. And I was fascinated by the landscape of London and its history. And one of the things that I've always done throughout my life and continue to do is look for historical monuments and places to go and visit. And so at my weekends, I would go and sort of traipse around London and find lots of things to see. So I'd go see the London, the old remains of the London Wall, the Tower of London, uh, Westminster, all of these incredible little, um, these little pockets of history that really, that really make up the, um, you know, the landscape of London and you get a sense of it, of how old the city is. But one of the buildings that really fascinated me that I had heard about is the Savoy Palace, which people may be familiar now because it's obviously the the grand and, and, and fabulous Savoy Hotel. Um, and actually the Savoy Palace itself was exactly where the hotel stands today. And I wanted to go and visit uh, this site and see if there was anything remaining of the Savoy because it, I had read how uh, spectacular it was. And I was surprised to find that there was literally nothing other than these, I, I suppose, sort of echoes of its of its memory through the street names and a tiny little portion of the original Savoy Chapel in the area. There was nothing that existed um, yet it had held so many fascinating figures from, from medieval history. You know, Geoffrey Chaucer spent time there. Jean Le Bon, the King of France, lived there when he was um, captured by the Black Prince after the Battle of Poitiers. And it was also the home of John of Gaunt that he inherited from his Lancastrian forebears. So I was quite saddened and surprised that there was nothing left of it, but it was the story of of why there was nothing left of it that fascinated me. And that led me into John of Gaunt because it was notoriously bought, burnt down during the Peasants' Revolt in 1381 when he was a target of the Peasants' uh, of, the, of the Rebels' rage. So that's really what led me into John of Gaunt. So I did a, uh, 
research degree all about this palace that went into my second uh, my second degree and I did a whole thesis around why the Savoy Palace was never rebuilt but I felt like I was really only attacking a very very tiny portion of, of John of Gaunt's character and that led me into the decision to write a book about him um, and sort of unpack more of of, of this person, this incredibly complex, fascinating character. He truly is fascinating. And for our listeners that are new to Tudor history, can you explain how he ties into the Tudors, please? Of course. So John of Gaunt is—he's almost seems to be this patriarch of of uh, of monarchy because it was through John of Gaunt that you have the Tudor line come down through his illegitimate, later legitimised children the Beauforts so the Beauforts were the children that he had with his then mistress and uh, and then later third wife Catherine Swinford and they were he gave them the title of Beaufort which and they were named after some of his his lands in France um, and so it was through the Beauforts many people who are listening to your podcast might be very familiar with Margaret Beaufort the uh, ultimate Tudor matriarch and she was the great-great-granddaughter of John of Gaunt through this line. That's just some amazing history how how it's all related and ties in. So thank you for explaining it. Back to your book, you've talked about researching. It sounds like you've spent a, a lot of your life researching him, but how long did it take you to write the book? Well, I mean, it was very difficult because practically for a first book, it does take a long time because you're often having to juggle it with other things. For, in my case, that was uh, continuing other work. I was working in, te- in television and history documentaries at the time, as well as family. And so it did take me quite a long time. I think it took me uh, from signing on the dotted line to actual publication. I signed, it was, so that would be 2017, and then it was published in 2021. So four years in total. So... I suppose you know that was that was a fairly a fairly long period of time, but it it I I worked on it in pockets, so I would take a few months where I'd focus solidly on the book, um, and then I would go away from it for a few months, and I would work on a television documentary series or uh, or something like that, and then I would come back to it. So that was the way I that was the way I was able to manage it, um, and then by the end, um, I built up some more momentum, and I probably dedicated uh, a good six months in total to solidly focusing on it. It sounds like it was incredibly well-researched and it it is a very good book. So let's talk more about this fantastic book, The Red Prince, John of Gaunt. So John of Gaunt was the third surviving son of uh, Edward III, who is known as uh, a warrior king, who's a very popular king. Uh, He was a king, the, the king that implemented the Hundred Years' War in 1337, which was three years before John of Gaunt was born in 1340. Um, and John of Gaunt was a, he was a incredibly wealthy magnate in England throughout his life. And this was partly because of his, his princely status, but it was also through lands that he inherited by, by right of his, his first wife, Blanche of Lancaster, who was the daughter of, um, a very wealthy magnate, Henry, Duke of Lancaster, the first Duke of Lancaster. Um, so John of Gaunt was diff- was was different and you and I suppose unique in his way because he was a prince, but he was also uh, he was also a duke, and he was incredibly 
he was incredibly landed. I mean, he had an extraordinary amount of land and wealth and he managed a huge amount of properties and he had an extraordinary retinue. So he had an enormous amount of retainers. So that's people who served under him. So he was incredibly powerful. And at, you know, after the death of his father, Edward III, following the death of his elder brother, the Black Prince, who many people may be familiar with, he was for a period uh, effectively a regent of, of England as well um, on behalf of his nephew, Richard. He was never formally titled regent, quite the opposite. He was really kind of overseeing the realm. He was an excellent diplomat. He was incredibly charming. He had a very, very good uh, sense of politics, but he was also loyal to his family, incredibly loyal, and that was really his downfall. He was an ardent royalist. He couldn't see from the perspective of the commons, um, and he would often fall out with the with the clergy. And he he had he came to loggerheads with the church several times. He wasn't a particularly effective military leader, even though he tried to be, because in this period, success was so tied up with military prestige. And that's why I believe that he has been he's been overshadowed by greater figures such as his father Edward III, and largely actually his brother, the Black Prince, which led to the reason why. I wanted to call the book The Red Prince, partly because red is the red rose is obviously the red rose of Lancaster. And also it's sort of a, a play on, on, on the Black Prince, who is the far more known figure. He seems complicated yet likable. And you mentioned his love of family. How did he get by with having so many women? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he had three wives and, you know, possibly, possibly other women. He definitely had, uh, when he was very young, he definitely had um, a daughter with one of his, one of his mother's um, ladies-in-waiting. Um, did he, did he have so many women? Well, I suppose for, for most of his life, he had, um, he, he had, it was in a relationship with Catherine Swinford, who is the most famous of, of his spouses. So she was his mistress from from shortly after the death of his first wife, Blanche. And I, I don't think there's no, I haven't come across any evidence of him being with anybody else or having any other uh, relationships whilst he was married to Blanche. And in fact, poor Blanche was nearly constantly pregnant. So I can't imagine he left her alone for very long. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but then he, yes, he did build a relationship with Catherine Swinford, who was, um, who was the wife of one of his retainers, Hugh Swinford, uh, who died whilst he was campaigning with Gaunt in France. And she was, she became the governess, the, ma- the maestress, which is like a governess of his children. And then, he, so he was placing her in his household quite formally to, um, in order probably to conduct their, conduct their affair. But this affair, you know, I, I do believe that it was grounded in, in love and respect um, and it continued on for many, many years. And indeed, she did become his his third wife. So his second wife, uh, Constance, was, was purely through political um, and territorial gains. So he married Constance a few years after Blanche had died in 1371. Blanche died in 1367. And she was the eldest daughter of Pedro, otherwise known as by his rather unfair moniker of Pedro the Cruel. And this was really because Gaunt at this stage had a massive um, interest in Castile, which was a which was territory 
in what we would now know as Spain, effectively, but it was like a kind of large proportion of Spain. The Iberian Peninsula was broken up in a way that we don't know it now. So it was the big chunk in the middle, but then you had uh, Aragon, Portugal to to the left, if you were looking at a map. Um, and then you've got sort of Granada right at the bottom. So Castile took up the, the, the vast majority of Spain. Gaunt had a vested interest in Castile and he knew that the only way to really obtain it, obtain kingship of Castile, was through through marriage, as much of the politics was was done in, in this period, in the medieval period. So he married Constance, and this was, it's, it's slightly complicated because Constance was the daughter of a, he was an ousted king. So he was grappling for the throne along, along with his uh, half-brother, Enrique Trastamara. So Gaunt basically took the side of of Pedro, but and then married, and then married Constance um, in order to be his successor. But then you had Enrique Trastamara on the other side, who was supported by the French. So you can see where I'm going here. If we play into the Hundred Years' War, England versus France, Spain basically became a bit of a battleground between them, and it was um, it was fought over, you know, in, in by proxy through the through the Spanish kings. But it was really as part of the Hundred Years' War. So Gaunt's interest was dynastic territorial and that's how he uh that's how why he married Constance but that was never really a relationship built on love and they they barely spent any time together and they had one surviving child a daughter named Catherine but but during that period Catherine Swinford was having many children so he was having um he was having a very open and active uh love affair with her um and it wasn't until Constance's death much later on um, that he finally, at the very end of his life, married married Catherine. How long was Catherine his mistress? And an estimation is fine. So she was his mistress from around. I think I think she was his mistress from about thirteen seventy two because he was actually he was um, he was lieutenant um, lieutenant sorry in in Aquitaine for quite a for about two years and he wouldn't have seen her in that time around thirteen seventy around the time the Black Prince was becoming very unwell so. He came back to England, and that's when he uh, formally took up the title King of Castile and Leon in 1372. And that's when he stayed in England for a period of time. And I think that's when he began his relationship with her. That's when around the time they had their first child. And then it's difficult because it did end for a period. So during the Peasants' Revolt, just shortly after the Peasants' Revolt, part of the complaint and the aggression against him particularly from the church, was his open relationship with Catherine. You know, it led to clerics calling him a fornicator. So he was um, very aware of the need to change his status in order to uh, focus his goal, which was effectively becoming king of Castile. So he abandoned his relationship with Catherine after the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. They continued to remain respectfully in touch. There's de- there is evidence of gifts, very practical gifts, being sent to her. Uh, and she was always comfortable. She lived in Lincoln and she had a very comfortable home in Lincoln. She was also, she was always very respected by him. And I do believe they maintained some kind of level of, of relationship that was friendly. But I don't think that they continued to have a sexual relationship because she certainly didn't have any more children. And then it appears it's uncertain as to when it picked up again. It, but he, she did then, she comes back in later on when he marries her. So it was probably, it was probably around the time Constance died that I would say that they 
regained their romantic connection or they never really regained any sort of romantic connection and their marriage was purely contractual in order to legitimise their children. And also, I believe, in order for him to ensure her her safety and her comfort for the, for the end of her life as well. You know, it was a sort of, um, it was an act of respect and honour. Again, it's just part of how complicated he was. And another thing that I found intriguing is so many of the ancestors of Henry VII were involved in actual love relationships, even though they were royals. And like you touched on so many times, people married for property or dynastic reasons, but so many of his ancestors really were love matches, weren't they? Yeah, and I do think that uh, John of Gaunt loved Catherine. I think that's abundantly clear, and I think that's clear really in his gifts to her. So you know, there's very little evidence of of med- in the re- in the records when you when you look at medieval women, particularly women who were not royal. And she wasn't even a noble woman, really. She was the daughter of a very sort of low low ranking squire from Hainault called Pandaroe. She was she was not somebody who would have been an accepted love match for John of Gaunt. It was, you know, when they married, it was scandalous. You know, she wasn't, um, it wasn't accepted in court circles among, with many, uh, with many of the nobility that this had happened. And in fact, when they were married, he um, actually avoided going, spending time in, at court for quite a long time. And they ended up just touring his lands in the north. Because I think he was avoiding that and protecting her against that. But the, I do think it was certainly... A love match. And if you do look at these gifts that he gives her, you know, it's not what you would imagine lovers would give each other. There's no posy rings or trinkets or jewels or, you know, material items. It's all incredibly practical stuff. So it's wood, it's wine for her cellars. He's making her comfortable, but then importantly, he's also giving her land, he's giving her property, and he's making her safe. And that, for me, indicates his respect and his love for her, that he is prioritising her safety and her stability and the safety and the stability of their, of their family that they have created together over these, over these very um, superfluous trinkets, which, I'm, you know, there were, there were those as well, I'm sure there were, but he's prioritising uh, security for her. And so for me, that speaks volumes of uh, about how you feel about somebody. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. As part of his very complicated life, do you feel that that's historical propaganda 
or does his complexity reflect his true character? So you mean, do, do I think that there has his reputation is is down to historical propaganda? Yes. Well, so much of this period and so much of you know medieval history we take from what the material and the source material that's available to us, and that has been read differently over 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 many years. You know, these antiquarian scholars in the nineteenth century when they were unearthing records, they had their own bias when they were looking at the sources and their own um, their own beliefs. So, so so much of what we know about John of Gaunt was already has already been selected by these by these antiquarian scholars and transcribed and put into books which have later been printed and digitized, etc. So just starting there, you know, the source material is 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 sparse in comparison to things 20th century documents. So we're we're already dealing with a much smaller archive. And, you know, so much obviously hasn't survived as well. But I think the most important thing is so much of what we know is also taken from chronicler's accounts. And chroniclers are usually clerical men who are cloistered. They are writing, for example, Thomas Walsingham from St Albans Abbey. They're writing from a particular point of view, single perspective, usually a clerical perspective. And I've already mentioned that John of Gaunt had fallen out with the church on several occasions. So his, uh, he was given quite a scathing, I think it's probably a good way of putting it, a scathing approach by some of these chroniclers. But then the other ones, when you're trying to create a balance view, you read some other chroniclers, he might be treated a little more gently, but then you realise who was funding this uh, these chroniclers to write, who was, who was actually pumping money into the abbey in which they, they lived and worked out of. For example, Henry Knighton, who was working out of the abbey in Leicester, Leicester being one of John of Gaunt's properties and, and, and lands. So that kind of makes sense as to why he might be uh, writing more favourably of John of Gaunt as, as opposed to Thomas Walsingham, who was incredibly scathing about him. So you have to uh, try and take a balanced approach, which is very difficult as a historian because of his writing history is inherently a biased exercise. But these chroniclers, it's always important, I find, to, to read as much as you can from different varying approaches and try and understand the background of these chroniclers as well as to where their opinions of John of Gaunt might have come from. So I think the whole kind of evil uncle uh, opinion of John of Gaunt largely came from from that and this sort of anti-Lancastrian rhetoric that has that has existed. And so there is a popular opinion that he tried to steal the throne of Richard II, etc. But that didn't that didn't really happen, and I certainly found no evidence of that. The only things that might suggest that would be some of these less favourable chronicle accounts, which are the ones that have become, I suppose, the the go to sources, you know, throughout history. So they're the ones that would have been mostly read. So that's where these these opinions come from. And there's all these rumours that are attached to him, like he was, you know, he died because he was so sexually active, you know, that he was. His testicles were putrid by the end because he was having so much sex. And this actually comes from a much later source, who was, again, an incredibly critical cleric, um, who saw John of Gaunt as this, this, this fornicator, this adulterer. And you have, to, you have to be quite critical of the sources themselves when you're reading them as a historian, but, but that is where these, these general these opinions and these rumours and this sort of creation of this character has come from. But then if I'm looking at sort of a fictional representation of him, I think 
Shakespeare in his first um, couple of acts of Richard II, I, I would say that he actually delivers a the character of Gaunt quite appropriately. And this, he calls him Old Gaunt, time-honoured Lancaster. And that is really, especially towards the end of his life, how I see him. He is this very tired, conflicted man who is duty-bound, and he is so bound by honour and desperate to redeem redeem honour and retain honour. Um, and he leaves this world devastated at how Richard has decided to conduct himself and dev- devastated at the state of the realm and the state of the monarchy. Circling back around, at a time when so many marriages were dynastic, why do you believe they picked on John of Gaunt? Because everyone had mistresses, it seems. He was very blatant with his affair with Catherine. He would bring her everywhere with him. I suppose you could compare that to how Henry VIII conducted himself with Anne Boleyn when he was still married to Catherine of Aragon. So it was similar, you know, the amount of criticism that Anne, I mean, look how Anne was perceived by the by the general public, she was hated. So it was deeply criticised. His his treatment of the, the sanctity of marriage was deeply criticised and frowned upon. And John of Gaunt was conducting himself at this point in quite an arrogant way. He was feckless. I think that that would be a word that I would use to describe him at, at this point. He, he was feckless. He was unaware, or he didn't care, about how he was being seen by the church. And the church were also feeding information to the commons and the general public as well. And he was becoming a, an unpopular figure. And this was also coupled with the fact that he was increasingly creating quite a continental court around him. There was a lot of suspicion of the fact that he had a lot of Spaniards in his retinue. He was packing the Savoy Palace with a lot of Castilians. And that made people feel uncomfortable. You know, England was never a uh, welcoming place to people who were considered to be foreign. You only have to look at the treatment of uh, the Flemish in this period who had created, who had effective like ghettos in London and how they were treated by Londoners. It wasn't, it was a very cultural and multicultural city, but there was definitely tension between different factions of, of the, the London society. So, you know, some of the commons of London were, were beginning to demonstrate animosity towards Gaunt. And then mixed up with this open relationship he had with Catherine, he was he was becoming increasingly un, un, unpopular. That's interesting that it was okay to conduct affairs, quite literally, in private, but just don't take them public. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of blatant disrespect for a, for a, an, an act of, of union before the eyes of God. So, you know, in a God-fearing society, that's not going to ever really be deemed to be a good thing. Absolutely. Well, in all this time you've taken to research him and write the book, can you think of even two things you learned while researching that absolutely blew your mind? Yeah, I think how how the, what he witnessed and those these amazing events that he was present for throughout his life and the amazing people that he communicated with. And what I really enjoyed in researching this book was how it this whole century and well the second part of the 14th century 
was like a web of people kind of overlapping and moving in and out of each other's lives. And I think one of the interesting relationships that he he did have was with Geoffrey Chaucer and just the way that they interconnected and not and I think what's interesting for me is not in the way that has been assumed like oh he he was a patron of the arts he patronized Chaucer and Chaucer wrote for him that actually wasn't the case he didn't uh, patronize Chaucer he in fact uh, Chaucer was part of his brother Lionel's household and they fought together and then they they possibly connected to the point where Gore put Chaucer in a position of administration for the crown. And then later on, it was only by chance that Chaucer was married to Philippa um, de Roo, who was Catherine's older sister. And then they connected that way. And then by the end, they were, you know, brothers-in-law. So I found that the, yeah, I find that the sort of progression of that relationship really interesting. And, and John of Gaunt obviously really deeply admired Chaucer and I think they got on very well because there is evidence of him supporting every member of Chaucer's family with gifts and putting them into positions of safety and, and privilege like he he sent Chaucer's daughter to an incredibly esteemed nunnery uh he took Thomas Chaucer Chaucer's son on on campaign with him to to Spain I think that that was a really wonderful trail to follow uh during the course of writing the book another thing that I would never have anticipated was how European he was in his mindset. He totally saw the benefits of a an expansive England. He saw the benefits of an empire and effectively this this Plantagenet dream of an empire. So something I think his father definitely uh, intended which is why he married his sons into sort of all of these various um, echelons of European royalty. Gaunt definitely extended that. He's incredibly clever. And that's something that struck me about him. He was clever. He could, he could, he was a good diplomat. He could really see a positive future that was outward looking rather than inward looking, which is why I think that he clashed so much with Richard, who was totally inward looking. And, he was he was desperate to extend that ambition. He was desperate to move outside of England, start making connections with the continent, start making um, expanding into into places like Castile, which would have been an enormous um, achievement if he had if he had managed it for for the Plantagenets. So, I think yeah, he was incredibly bright in European thinking, and he was I think he would have in many ways I think he would have made an excellent king. His life is really more like a novel, doesn't it? It does. It does in many ways. I think a lot of your a lot of your listeners will definitely be familiar of how his life has been factored into a novel with obviously Anya Seaton's Catherine, uh, which is uh, based on on Catherine Swinford, and he obviously heavily features in that. But Anya Seaton, I have read it. It's a lovely book, and Anya Seaton definitely did her research on that. She draws so much on John of Gaunt's, the archives relating to John of Gaunt, um, in order to write it, because obviously there's so little about Catherine herself. So what other books do you have available right now? Uh, so it's been a busy year. 2021 was rather, <laughs> was rather chaotic. Um, so I, put, I have The Red Prince, which is available, but I also have another book called What is History Now?, which I co-edited with Susanna Lipscomb. And that is a collection of essays which is celebrating the 60th anniversary of What is History, which was my great-grandfather's book, which is a very famous book. And that talks about how history is interpretive 
and how we can look at the past. And these are a collection of essays from esteemed historians and writers such as Peter Frankopan, uh, Islam Issa, Bethany Hughes, Emily Brand. There's a real collection, Alex von Tunzelman. Um, there's a real collection of voices in there. And it's all about how history is interpretive. And it's, I, the idea of it is to give people a very balanced look on how we can approach the past and how actually the study of the past is an incredibly welcoming and, and wonderful exercise. So that is also available. And then I am currently working on another book now, which will hopefully be coming out in the sort of autumn of 2024. Do you have any upcoming appearances you can tell us about? Uh, yes. So my next in-person appearance talking about the Red Prince will be at Chalk Valley History Festival on the 23rd of June. And I believe I am at there on stage at 3.30pm in the afternoon. But double check that if you want to come and see. I think it's 3.30pm and I'll be talking about John of Gaunt there. So there'll be a lot more um, information about him for that talk. I know the All Things Tudor group looks forward to that. A lot of Americans are coming to the UK this summer, and we've been posting about it in the group, and they're telling us about buying their tickets already. So they'll be glad to know they can listen to you speak as well. So thank you for that. And this has just been a wonderful talk, and please come back at any time. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. It was lovely to speak with you. Well, thank you, Helen. Have a good day. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.